Welcome to another episode of A Load of BS, the behavioural science podcast with me, Daniel Ross. This week I welcome Henry Winter, chief football writer at the Times newspaper. Henry is without doubt one of the very best practitioners of his art and I hope you sense his thoughtfulness and erudition in this conversation. Before the Times, Henry was a football correspondent at the Telegraph for 21 years and prior to that he wrote at the Independent in its very earliest days. Henry was named Specialist Correspondent of the Year at the British Sports Journalism Awards in 2004, 2009, 2010 and 2013 and Football Writer of the Year in 2016. In 2010 he was named among the top 10 most influential sports writers in Britain by the trade publication Press Gazette. He also makes regular appearances as a pundit on Sky Sports' Sunday Supplement and BBC Radio 5 Live. Outside of journalism, he has ghostwritten books with former FA Chief Executive David Davies and with ex-Liverpool players John Barnes, Sir Kenny Dalgleish and Stephen Gerrard. He also wrote his own tome in 2017, 50 Years of Hurt, The Story of England Football, which I suspect would have sold even more copies had it been released a year later after England's ride at the 2018 World Cup in Russia. Today I talk with Henry about his love for his craft, what he wants his readership to feel, Turgenev Tolstoy and the Russian World Cup, an enlightened England generation, groupthink in football narratives, football ritual, why Gareth is good, Bobby was brilliant and Fabio a flop, why football is the only sport with hooligans, and English entitlement. If you haven't already, please subscribe or follow a load of BS. These podcasts are my greatest project and they are only worthwhile with your support. You can find my podcasts on all the usual platforms, Apple, Spotify or wherever you listen. Do give me a five-star review. And let me know what you think of it all on Twitter at Daniel S.J. Ross. Now, game on. Henry, welcome to A Load of BS. It's my real pleasure to welcome you today. Hi, thanks very much for having me on, Daniel. Great pleasure. Now, a few weeks ago, I interviewed Gary Lineker to discuss the psychology of sport from the point of view of a professional footballer. We addressed superstitions, questions of form and confidence, understanding what makes up a successful team. Today, we're going to get a journalist's perspective, but not just any journalist, because I think, Henry, without wanting to dish out too much flattery, without having put you to work a little, you are one of the very best sports writers in the country forget football for football commentary i read your reports first even if tottenham have lost for cricket it's always mike atherton because what you both share is a perception and interest in human behavior the stories and the color behind the game the feeling the backdrop the surroundings and the context so my peanut butter on toast is always all the richer for having your voice alongside it every morning but now we're turning the tables as you become interviewee and indeed in my heart of hearts i think chief football writer is really my dream job. So before we start this properly, can I make you an offer? The answer has to be yes to that, of course. Now, would you like to swap jobs with me? Because I've got a good feeling that you'd have a real knack for selling uh, insurance software. And frankly, I think I could mix it at Camp Nou on Champions League nights, or perhaps you'd rather stay where you are. I've sweated 35 years to get this job. I'm not <laughs> yeah. going to surrender it now. Where yeah. we're very privileged is there's some fantastic sports writing talent in this country, from the sort of, you know, the more established like Martin Samuel to the sort of, there's a fantastic new young generation 
exhilaration coming through now, which, which is great because A, it keeps you on your toes, but also it makes you even more prouder of the industry that there is this talent there. Absolutely. I was perhaps veering down, talking rather too much BS, but we should let's get down to the, to the real subject. I want to start with you, Henry, and understand your own motivations for following football so intensely and assiduously. I mean, very simply, why do you love football? Why does it stir you so? Well, from the job perspective, I quite like the idea of getting paid to travel around the world, exploring countries. I'm naturally very nosy, like most journalists, very curious of places. So if you go to, so I did Russian literature at uh, university, but that was purely so that I could play football and work on the student sports paper. But so when I got to Russia in 2018, I thought, well, I might as well put this supposed tenuous link with Turgenev and Tolstoy to some advantage. So I would just sort of wander off and just, you know, in all the cities that we went to and see if I could find some Tolstoy or Turgenev connection. And it was just that curiosity about people, about places, about just little things. And that's why lockdown was really interesting, just being locked up at home. Although actually, bizarrely, we were still allowed to go to games. We couldn't go abroad. Just, you know, wherever you go to explore, to find out more about people, to pick up the local newspaper, to listen to the radio, look at the local television. I'm just quite nosy. I got shipped off to school in Munich and Paris as a kid because my parents wanted to take me out of the London bubble and give me more of a taste of the world. And I think it's probably curiosity from that. But in terms of the football, talk to any kid in this country and I don't think I was any different. All my mates were going off and becoming highfalutin lawyers and musicians and doctors. And because of the passion for football, I just wanted to see if I could get a career out of that. So the job I've got now is pretty much what I wanted since I was like 14, 15, 16, because there was a great times. I mean, times have been blessed with far better writers than me down the years. And they have one at the time called Jeffrey Green. It was almost Graham Green and his, his abilities. And what I liked about him is he could go to American Art to cover a match. And part of the match report was about his mad taxi journey from the airport and the things that he'd seen. I do quite like that travelogue element because, you know, we are privileged to be there. And the match is important. The headers and volleys are important, but also the occasion, the moods, what's going on in the country. And I, I think it's particularly pertinent at the moment with this generation of England players. And Gary Lineker would be very aware of this. They're quite an enlightened generation. You know, Marcus Rashford with his child food poverty, Raheem Sterling with his stance on racism. In fact, all the players with their stance on, on racism, Tyrone Minks. So I like that. Football journalism is not about headers and volleys. I mean, I write a lot about obesity. I write a lot about grassroots facilities. I'm not a particularly political person. I'm probably sort of somewhere in the middle, but I write a bit about food banks as well and the players raising money for them and awareness of them. So I quite like that. No one day is the same. We're talking now and 30 seconds ago, the FA announced, although to be fair, they briefed us in advance, that Southgate's got a new contract. There's a debate about what Pochettino go to Manchester United. I just like that variety. I get bored. But also I think ultimately it comes down to the fact I'm quite nosy and I like different subjects and I like different people and learning more about them. I think those are important characteristics if you're a journalist. And when you write, Henry, what do you want your readers to feel? I want them to feel the occasion. I mean, the sports writers who I like most in this country, the sort of the Martin Samuels, Paul Haywoods, Johnny Lewis, they've got this great knack, maybe because they're sort of general sports writers, but they've got this great knack of being, in boxing terms, ringside, and yet at the back of the arena. So they're close up, and they're getting the gum shield in their face. They're getting spattered with blood. They're getting the sweat. They're getting absolutely everything. They can hear the sort of, you know, the pain and the crunch of every punch. And at the same time, some have got this gift to take them to the back of the battlefield 
field and have that sort of general type overview, I think that is a fantastic gift. And one that I haven't, I certainly haven't come close to mastering yet, you know, the passion and perspective to be down on the touchline pitch side and actually capture that drama. And yet actually to be able to put it into context at speed, I find that a remarkable gift and one I'm still working on. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I'm curious about is how do you manage to keep your writing fresh when you're forced to publish so quickly? How do you balance comprehensive reporting with speed? Because football keeps changing. I'm incredibly lucky because my career, I mean, I came out of university in 85 and I immediately walked down to Fleet Street and knocked on doors and managed to blag my way into a sports agency because actually at the time, football journalism was just, well, sport was in the gutter. There was hooliganism. People were saying, what on earth are you wanting to get involved in that industry for? Not the industry of journalism, but writing about football. It was very unpopular at the time. But since then, the changes, particularly since the advent of the Premier League in, in 92 and then the acceleration of European football with the Champions League, although I've got issues with the greed of the Premier League and the sort of slightly unchampioned status of the Champions League, the fact is there's so much to write about. There's no way you can go into a game and say, well, I know what's going to happen. Now, I'm still recovering from 99 camp now. And my first edition went with 1,100 words of German superiority in the Champions League final, Manchester United, Bayern Munich. Ferguson tactically inept, playing three wingers in midfield. What was he up to? To then ad-libbing, game going into extra time, Teddy Sheringham equaliser, Manchester United showing the great resilience of their manager and fighting back. Two gulps of oxygen in Catalonia later, just writing Ole Gunnar Solskjaer turned this match and form and the world of sport and football on its head last night with a dramatic late winner for Manchester United. And I think we sent one edition at 1-1. So there are probably a few confused people in Cornwall whenever they talk about how many Champions Leagues Manchester United have won. So I love that unpredictability. I love that blank screen. And then you've got to kind of make it up on the hoof or so not make it up on the hoof, but react on the hoof. I imagine that it must be quite tough knowing this big fan that you are of the game, the challenge of moderating your behaviour in the thick of the drama, bearing in mind you've got to submit copy at the final whistle. That must be tricky managing the emotions while trying to put pen to paper. I'm completely confident. Cold. Yeah, completely cold. And it's slightly strange afterwards because I'll often go for a sort of drink with friends who are at the matches, fans, whichever team it is. You put everything in, you hope, you try to put all the sort of the emotion, capture all the emotion, you put it into the screen. And I'm actually quite flat afterwards, whereas I'll go, into, I'll go and talk to mates. So like after the 5-1, even Heskey scored in Munich in 2001 with England, I went for a drink with some mates afterwards and they were all absolutely buzzing about it. But no, in terms of the press box, you can't sort of national stereotype too much, but we're all quite neutral in press boxes. In fact, when a goal goes in, there's normally who played the ball, who brought it out from the back, you know, particularly in the possession game now, you know, when it's, there's so many sort of faces to a move. Yeah. You've got to check up on that. Also, we've got monitors. I mean, the good thing about the monitor is probably about four seconds behind the action. Radio is normally about half a second behind the action. So you can sort of juggle your mind to use all those sort of almost separate media streams to feed into your own take on it and then just write at the same time. So press boxes are fairly unemotional places compared to when Greece were 2-1 up at Old Trafford again in 2001. I mean, there was a guy next to me for the Piraeus Bugle who had a big cigar and he was sort of you know, celebrating Greece and all that and fair enough and they, they, you know, they were playing well England were really poor kept missing free kicks and then Beckham curled that one in and actually I think the Greeks certainly sort of reacted more than the English did so you can't stereotype everyone reacts differently but I would say we're fairly calm you never see shirts in the press box there was an, in fact there was an Italian journalist wearing an Italian shirt in the press box for the Euro final and he got a bit of stick for that so yeah we're quite restrained 
But building on that, and I wanted to talk about punditry. I find by no means all, but a reasonable amount of punditry is rather oversimplistic. It can be hysterical, reactive, it often delivered without enough context. And I think football, a bit like the stock market, suffers from its own bandwagon effect, if you get my meaning. And are you conscious of a groupthink in delivering when you're delivering your football narratives? I would not consider what the person next to me is writing. Actually, what I tend to do more of, because we have a sort of like maybe half an hour between editions when you can gather your thoughts and do what's called a rewrite. I will often go on to fans' websites, fans' forums, and just see if there's, particularly if I, if, I mean, I see probably about a third to a half of Manchester United matches, but if I haven't seen their sort of their most recent two, I'll have a look at the fans' forums, read the MEN, just to make sure that I've got every base covered and I'm not sort of just it away in my own world. But in terms of groupthink in the press box, I don't think so. And I think that's why the industry is thriving at the moment. You've got so many disparate thoughts. I mean, I will always read through what everyone's written after the match, whether digitally or in print the next day, and just see, oh, that was a really good line, or I should have taken that approach and that was really good. But there's no consensus of approach. I mean, I've written things which have been diametrically opposed to a mate of mine who works for us or the mail or the telegraph who's sitting next to me. And that's kind of the way it should be. Absolutely. But talking of punditry, I'd be a little provocative here, but I do find a high proportion of particularly post-match interviews, all of curious, perfunctory, and at times uninformative. So my question is, why do you think it is that experienced interviewers often ask questions that they know the answers to already? Because they know they'll get the answer that they want and the reaction that they want. And that is an absolute art form. You can't compare the sort of the interviews that maybe I do where I've got sort of time to sort of sit down with a player and sort of develop something and it'll either be at the training ground or it won't be on match day and there's less sort of intensity and they're not so guarded in their comments. But I mean, this, you know, the, the television reports say like, you know, so one of the best post-match interviews is Jeff Shreves. He knows he's basically got three questions, maybe four, in which he's got to get a reaction probably from the man of the match, putting the match into context with a guy who's just given absolutely everything, who probably wants to go off and see his family, although everyone likes being interviewed by Jeff. And it's that's a completely different art form. So television post-match interviews, they often get good reactions and good headlines and good content, but they're not necessarily a window into the true nature of a player. Yeah, that's right. I'm being a little cynical. It's a tricky job. I suppose I always find the first clangor is how important were those three points today? Because, you know, I could assure them every time the answer will either be massive or something like it's just still three points, whether it's Man United or Norwich. But there's an art to it. And it's, you know, a good television interview is a bit like a good fast bowler who will vary the delivery. And he might give them a dolly just to sort of warm them up. Fair enough. Let's change tack. I want to talk about ritual in sport and football. What makes football such a powerful and addictive ritual, do you think? Because it's the new religion. I mean, for sort of, well, as long as I can remember. I mean, it is so powerful. It's the tribalism element. I think if you're going to strip it down to one element, you would say belonging. I think there's a sense of belonging in. Anyone, you only got to look at a lot of films, a lot of books, a lot of music. Belonging is at the heart of it, whether that's rooted in security, whether that's rooted in family, rooted in a range of interests. I think a lot of people do have that sense of belonging. And I think you noticed it particularly during the pandemic and as people came out of the pandemic, they wanted to get back in football grounds, partly because they love football and they wanted to see football. Actually, they just wanted to, you know, we're, we're ultimately quite sociable beasts. And people wanted to mix and mingle and just be close to people and talk to people and that sense of belonging. So football offers that family. And that's why I think in moments of great stress, when there are tragedies in football, you see football 
communities coming together collectively, clubs coming together. I mean, I'll take my local club, Leicester City, when Vishai, their great patron and owner, passed away in that terrible helicopter crash on the ground. Leicester City's response from players, from Kashbush Michael, who actually ran towards the burning helicopter, to the players and the fans who gathered outside King Power, to Susan Whelan, the chief executive, who was emailing individuals who she felt might have been struggling a bit, understandably, emotionally, for losing someone as powerful in their own individual lives and the club's life as Vishai. So football, I mean, you, you see in the pandemic, the response of football, there is that sense of belonging, that sense of family, that sense of community that you see in football. And I think also people look for leaders in life. As I say, I'm not particularly political, but if you're saying, actually, there are not many great political leaders around at the moment, actually, there's some fantastic leaders in football, whether it's managers. Jurgen Klopp, in that great tradition of Liverpool managers, Chankly Paisley, could lead a generation of people. There's sort of a demagogue element. And individuals as well, you look for leadership and everyone sort of slags off the sort of the younger generation and always say, well, they're not as hungry and as committed as we are. But you look at what Marcus Rashford's done, the way he, I mean, I can remember talking to someone in Downing Street about Marcus Rashford and I was going, seriously, next time you see the Prime Minister, tell him to back off because Marcus Rashford will do to the Prime Minister, just as he's done to left-backs for the last sort of four or five years, he will win because there is that power with this young generation. So that's a convoluted way of saying that belonging, leadership, emotion, and also we're quite sociable characters. We like going to the pub. We like mixing with people. Going to matches, and you find that fans said this, they really miss the ritual of going to the pub, wine bar, whatever it is in football nowadays, and meeting up with friends and then that shared belonging. But ultimately it's belonging. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And that, that's quite profound because the superficial question is why do fans keep coming back to teams even after years of failure? It's arguably a little irrational, but I think everything you say trumps that. It's, it's far deeper. And I think also in, a, in this world of uncertainty, accentuated particularly in the last 20 months, you know, sports games, once teams, fixtures, fellow fans, the consistent ritual, it's like sort of a loyal dog that's always at one's feet, yeah. offering some comfort and hopefully some innocent fun. I mean, maybe you've answered this in part, but are there other things beyond the obvious that you've learned specifically in the last 18, 20 months about what football means to so many people? Well, I didn't really need to be told, but it reminded me of how important it is to the nation and the fact that Boris Johnson was so keen for the Premier League to keep playing. I mean, I did 160-odd games during lockdown. I almost felt like I had the roads to myself. I was sort of driving late at night and there were that sort of 12, 13, 14 journalists allowed in at each match and you'd be tested. But it was obviously the government, and Boris Johnson is not a football fan, he realised the importance of it to the nation. Maybe he felt that actually it would keep a lid on potential issues by making sure that there was live entertainment on television. Again, it's only a percentage of the country have access or can afford access to it. But yeah, I think it became very important during, even more important during lockdown. And the fact, you know, you look at what Jordan Henderson did with his work for the NHS, raising millions of pounds for the NHS and getting all the players on board as well and getting all the captains together. I thought that was fantastic. I actually felt quite proud of football during the pandemic. I, I mean, you know, there was some embarrassment moments like certain clubs furloughing their staff and taking public money I thought that was wrong but actually on the whole a smaller club in inverted commas but still huge in the community AFC Wimbledon the work that they were doing locally and that was echoed all over the country whether it was David Moyes or Harry Maguire delivering sort of food parcels you know in, in the streets near where they lived whether it was Jordan Henderson doing his amazing work Kevin De Bruyne and it's interesting when you talk to footballers and I, it just I'm not the brightest and I should have realised 
this beforehand. But one of the reasons why the footballers were so good at responding to the NHS and to supporting key workers was actually they must have realised, they will have known, because if any group in the country is reliant on their health and on people who work, whether it's at the NHS or whether it's in the private sphere, it's footballers. Stephen Gerrard's career was saved by a doctor when he was sort of six, seven o'clock in his local hospital. Now, well put. I want to tap into your experience of studying football for over 30 years. What are the characteristics and behaviours of the most successful teams that you've witnessed in your years following the game? They have a mission. I think that's the same with any individual in life. If you've got that extra mission to drive you on, Ferguson's famous team talks were all about you're doing this for your family, you're doing this for the fans, you're doing this for the club. When you go out there, remember you're representing the club and who you're representing and all those people who've made sacrifices for you. Go and make your parents proud. I think it's leadership. I think it's community again, that sense of belonging in a dressing room, a balance of a team. You don't necessarily have to have, you know, the 11 best players, but you have to have that balance as a team. And then just flashes of genius, like a Ronaldo or a Messi, just who are capable of providing that at the most difficult moment. But also, I think it's a mindset as well as a sort of tactical and technical strength. And that mindset of, was it 2004 when Greece won the, the Euros? They didn't have any great players there, Harris there's maybe, but they did have that mindset. They had a good tactician in charge. And talking of tacticians in charge, managers and coaches, why do you think Gareth Southgate has thrived so far in international football when he was average at club level? He's good with young players. I think young players are less questioning tactically. He's just a good guy. And you can just see how people respond to him. You know, if there were any positives to come out of his dreadful penalty miss in Euro 96, he's kind of learned from that. And he's, he, he wanted to take all the stigma or the fear. He's taken the fear out of England, ultimately. He's taken the fear out of penalties by getting them to practice more. He's taken the fear out of the relationship with the media and with the fans. At the end of the Euros 2016, England fans in Nice. I mean, they were mutinous under Hodgson towards the end. They were mutinous towards the players as well. They felt the players didn't care. Some of the players weren't reporting for duty. Southgate addressed all that, particularly on the eve of 2018, the World Cup, where he basically just got all 23 players in a room in the futsal suite at the St. George's Park, the training ground, and just basically just got each player to open up to the media and just talk about their background, their journeys. And just by serendipity or otherwise, it was the morning of a lot of the critical headlines about Raheem Sterling's gun to And he just sat there very calm. He's a very calm individual, Raheem. And he just sort of talked about what the gun meant to him, the tribute to his father who was shot in Jamaica when Raheem was two. And then it provoked a debate from that. Danny Rose spoke about mental health issues. Carl Walker talked about growing up watching previous World Cups in a friend's flat in a high rise in Sheffield when they had a pot of 50ps to put in the meter on the television. I just think that we kind of got to understand understand the players a bit better and then obviously as media we're conduits and we pass that on to the supporters so he, he took the fear out of the media he took the fear out of the shirt he took the fear out of penalties he made them go and express themselves I mean he was fortunate that there is this fantastic generation of players who've been coming through the academies and we're seeing another generation you know you look at Bellingham and you look at Mason Greenwood you look at Phil Foden even the younger generation and the Rashford generation you think wow what talent England have got coming through but credit to Southgate 
decade. He was one of the reasons for that because when he was director of youth development, elite development at the FA 10 years ago, he went round the counties and said, listen, we can't just play kick and rush on the sevens. You know, let's have more possession-based games. Let's have smaller pitches, smaller goals. So he was very much instrumental in that. And now, quite rightly, he's reaping the benefits of that. And beyond Gareth, what qualities did Bobby Robson, Terry Venables have, which, say, Fabio Capello, Sven Goran Eriksson, Steve McLaren and Graham Taylor didn't? I mean, you can't really lump those four in together because they all had sort of strengths and weaknesses. I would say with Bobby and Terry, I was fortunate to know great Bobby and Terry. They had great human qualities, really interesting characters. Bobby, you could ask him a question like you're talking about sort of, you know, the bland pundits question. You could ask Bobby and say, well, that was a good three points. And there was one, was one game at Newcastle United and Bobby would always give long answers, spectacularly long answers. I remember interviewing him once and the Newcastle United press officer came over and said come on Bobby you've got to go and this was about so like 30 minutes into a 20 minutes of allotted time and he said well I haven't got to Italia 90 yet and that was Bobby but there was one press conference answer at Newcastle United and one of the guys said I'm going to transcribe the tape and actually I'm going to count up how many words Bobby used to a simple question of that was a good three points today Bobby wasn't it and it was something like 942 because Bobby was just one of life's enthusiasts and like Terry Venables I mean Terry Venables you know that's one of the great joys was sitting next to him at a meal and obviously talking about football but talking about music talking about board games talking about all the things that he you know of life that he was was interested in and I think players responded to that to the human skills of those two in particular and just the one manager who just didn't connect was Fabio Capello and I mean it was great to cover because it was just absolute chaos and there were stories every day but locking the England players up in this five star retreat out in South Africa but near Rustenburg was just hilarious to cover but I felt for the players because they were just going stir crazy so Capello didn't understand I mean we actually talked to Capella on occasion he said you do realise you have got players there who need to be entertained you need to take computer games you need to have a pool room you need to have I mean Southgate would be very good you know little things like inflatable unicorns and Capella was used to Paolo Maldini and Franco Baresi sitting in a corner of Milan's training ground talking about Verdi for four hours over a coffee so you might get that with David James but one or two of the players it was going to be an issue with. so it was hilarious to cover but it was chaos well, those are lovely insights actually I'm also curious about the men and women who hire these managers. Why are football chairmen who have often run other businesses with great success, with great long-term vision, both often rather unoriginal and irrational, rather continuously stereotypical in their behaviour when it actually comes to hiring and firing their managers? Let me give you one example which is close to me as a Spurs fan. There are countless. I mean, one could think about what's going on at Manchester United now, but when Daniel Levy appointed Mourinho at Tottenham and the outcome follows every other job he's taken, excepting Spurs, you know, sadly won no trophies but Levy surely knows that this is the likely result but he cannot resist the big name allure he thinks Mourinho practically just has to arrive and the magic dust will fall rather when you might say that appointing someone like at the time Graham Potter or even Eddie Howe perhaps doesn't carry the same cachet but probably a far sounder business decision I think there's a star element to it I think that people want big names I also think if you've been a businessman football such a sort of febrile emotional business if you appoint a chief executive of a bank you pretty much know what you're getting, you're going to get a safe pair of hands and likelihood is it will work. 
you could appoint the right manager, but he might just be at completely the wrong time, a player gets injured, things don't work out. There are no real guarantees. I mean, Thomas Tuchel came into Chelsea and there were a few question marks about him. I thought Lampard wasn't treated particularly well, but you knew Tuchel coming in was a good manager. But there are very few sure bets as managers coming in. I mean, people are talking about Manchester United now. Pochettino could come in maybe next summer and he could do fantastically because he is a very good manager. But you know what? There are no guarantees, which makes it kind of fun as a journalist. There's a lack of predictability. So it's different, but I think they often play safe managers. I think a lot of reversion to the mean, which is that players and managers both become flavour of the month at one time and then quite the opposite immediately after. And the reality is if you look across a whole season, standards revert to a mean. And so one has to sort of often take a longer term view, but inevitably the game makes quick fire decisions. Yeah. And I think what you often find is that managers tend to be the antithesis of the person they replaced. It's certainly with England. You go from sophisticated foreigner to more yeoman English, whatever, and sort of bouncing along like that. I mean, some, I can't remember who it was and I wish I could give them credit as long as they're not charging royalties because it cost me a fortune. But someone came up with a great line when Mourinho placed Pochettino using, as you know, the Spurs motto, we've had to dare and now is to do. And Mourinho embodied to do because of his, what is it, 25 trophies. So yeah, you could see why there's so much money tied up. It's such an important position that a club is the most important position. I mean, managers actually, bizarrely, should be paid more. I think the game in a way slightly changed and slipped away from managers to an extent when star players started getting paid more. But it's just such an important position because they're the lightning rod. They are the, the tactician, the inspirer. They're liaising with the sponsors. They're dealing with the media. The manager is such an important position that you can understand why some owners do play safe. Let's talk about some of the problematic politics still surrounding the game. You tweeted recently that England players will make a statement about human rights issues in Qatar after qualifying for the World Cup to be hosted there next year. In real terms, what do they, the players, hope to achieve by that? I think this generation of players, maybe I've been naive, are actually quite genuine. You look at the backgrounds that they've come from, community here, obviously high percentages of them have got roots, connections overseas. They are aware, you know, they might not read the Times every day, but they are aware of what's going on in the world. Some of them, sadly, a high percentage of them come from broken families. They are very aware of the sort of the issues in life. I'm fortunate I come from a pretty privileged background. But just talking to the players about, you know, if I interview an England player now, I will routinely ask them, did you go to school hungry because this is their world and they talk about it passionately. I interviewed Callum Wilson last week and he was talking about, you know, these food banks were really important for him and his family and they talk about that so powerfully because they believe in it but also because they've experienced it. Raheem Sterling talks about racism so eloquently same with Tyro Meeks because they've experienced and endured it. I don't doubt their authenticity one yeah. bit. I really admire it. I corroborate everything that you say, but I think making statements is clearly better than nothing. But do you not think that if they or the FA, particularly the FA, really cared and had the courage of their convictions, they simply just wouldn't participate in the tournament? Wouldn't that be the yeah. really courageous move, easier said than done? Yeah, but with respect, then you wouldn't actually go anywhere. Then you wouldn't have gone to the Olympics in China. I think it's good. I mean, I really admire what the Norwegian, the Dutch, and the German players have already done is actually raise the issues with t-shirts, with statements that t-shirts aren't going to end racism, but at least it fosters debate. The players have driven through the taking of the knee and you just see how it's changed. So Middlesbrough, two games there before the Euros, there were boos when the England players 
took the knee. Now, there's applause. Now, partly the applause is because conscientious fans are wanting to drown out the jeers or the abuse of less enlightened people alongside them. But also the players have got their message over. So the players can get their message over. Actually, you know what? Come on, let's be intelligent. We're supposed to be grown up adults in this country, or most of us. Actually, taking the knee is not an endorsement of let's defund the police, Black Lives Movement, Cap B, Cap L, Cap M. Actually, it goes back to Martin Luther King and civil process there. And let's be intelligent about that. So they can do that. They can make a difference like that. It's a legitimate case. I'm sure the Newcastle fans would advance this as well. We do a lot of deals with the Qataris. We do a lot of deals with the Saudis. Does the moral compass of the nation just live in football dressing rooms? So I think what is great is they are taking the stand on these issues. And I actually think it's brilliant that they are going to go to, I imagine, England's first training session when they get out to Qatar. Jordan Henderson will be there with his rainbow laces. There'll be T-shirts and everything. And then in the press conferences, I mean, there was an excruciating press conference in 2016 when Harry Kane was asked about Brexit and he couldn't answer. That wouldn't happen now. The players would answer now. The players, when they're asked about, they wanted to wait until England are qualified. But I think it's good that they're going to go to a country and shine a light on issues there. And we do have political relations. You know, go on the FCO website and you'll see the amount of connections, you know, trade and whatever, the amount of businesses do deals with countries. So absolutely, I think it's vital that the England players are taking a stand. The journalists will write that, will cover it. I have to say the Qataris are very quick to respond when you write about things they're not happy about. So I think it's good. But you know what? The England national team shouldn't be driven by what one or two columnists in their ivory tower say they should and shouldn't do. These are competitive individuals who want to go to the World Cup and they are obviously focused on that, but they are also using their platform. And don't forget, you know, they've got huge social media platforms, these players. Take Lewis Hamilton. I think, was he racing out there in Qatar yes. the weekend in Doha I mean I, I admire Lewis Hamilton as a racing driver as an individual and as a campaigner but didn't he have a rainbow helmet I tell you what that makes quite a statement yeah and I, I think you make an important point on reflection which is the participation and it allows the platform allows you to shine a light and I think that's an important point but let's next talk about our friends in Saudi Arabia so despite a variety of ongoing protests what do Newcastle fans' reaction generally positive to their new owners say about us as human beings well I think it mainly said about their relief of escaping from Mike Ashley they absolutely wanted to escape from that. I wasn't a particular fan of the whole sort of dressing up in Saudi, you know, the whole cultural appropriation issue. But, you know, that's football for you. My disappointment was that the Rubin brothers and their family, who are A, very wealthy and B, very well connected and invest a lot in the community and they own Newcastle Racecourse and they are billionaires. I didn't understand, I'm throwing other people's money around here, but I didn't quite understand why they didn't buy Newcastle United. Because for £305 million, they will have a huge asset it. Financially, long term, if they want to flip it in four, five, ten years, I was disappointed that they didn't take it over. I'm not a huge fan of the Saudis. I mean, after what they did to Khashoggi, after other issues, slightly more understanding of the sort of the Arabic world than I probably was about 10, 15 years ago, because my brother's a quite well-known Islamic scholar, and I obviously follow what he does and interested in the, you know, the countries and the work that he's interested in. So I think my one disappointment in all this was the, the Newcastle 
Newcastle United LGBT, their reaction, I thought they should have gone in harder on the Saudis and the club as well. I think that was an opportunity. I was slightly surprised that they were not welcoming, but sort of slightly more accepting of it. So, yeah, that's but, curious. Yeah. But again, you look at the business that this country does. Should the moral compass of the nation be in the big market, you know, the Newcastle United dressing room? I think if they come out and make statements, then good. But Newcastle United fans are conflicted. They can be totally happy that the takeover has gone through. You know, you look historically and politically of this country and Jarrah and all that. This is a fairly conscientious, aware part of the country historically. And I can't believe they're completely happy with having Saudi owners. No, I think that's fair. As we cover very briefly the various problems and challenges that the game is facing, why do you think it is that football is the only sport with hooligans? Interesting question. I mean, I guess it's a societal thing. It's the atmosphere of it, the intensity of it. It's the platform. Again, it's the warped wing of the whole concept of family and belonging. I think we're not a country that, you know, I don't know where you live, but if you go around certain market towns on a Friday or Saturday night, you will see violence. And I think football's a very easy platform for it. If you want to have a pop at the police, if you want to have a pop at another tribe, in inverted commas, football is very easy arena or an easier arena for that can I say is a lot better than it was the violence has actually become verbal in terms of the abuse that got thrown and now that poison is now sort of online so it's kind of a written abuse rather than punches being thrown so much but look there's still violence people don't understand this is one thing I have learned in football as I say coming from a slightly sheltered upbringing there are people out there who like violence there are people who like a good punch up who maybe because there's some character issue in themselves or they have a boring job or things aren't right at home. But actually, fortunately, it's a very small percentage, but they do like having a couple of drinks. And the big problem in football now is cocaine for supporters is they do like going along and having a ruck. You mentioned family, by the way. I think that's an important point. I think football particularly breeds extremely powerful loyalties. I mean, other sports do so as well, of course. But I think also historically, while I hypothesize whether traditional terracing compressed a far higher number of fans together, which gave additional safety in numbers. But you still get fights organised at service stations on the way to grounds but look can I say yeah. you know when I was started out going to matches in the mid 70s I would have run a mile if, I saw, if there was any trouble but there was far more then and in the 80s covering England for the first 15 years of my England career covering reporting on England you know you occasionally writing with tear gas you were sort of ducking missiles so I'm always envious of the younger generation now when they come in and they start writing about all oh, the sort of hooligan problems in football I'm going to go mate it was different a few years ago. Yeah, I imagine covering the last couple of Gareth Southgate tournaments where the Euros or World Cups was a totally different experience to some of the earlier camps. It's not like Glastonbury, it's like Woodstock now. It's an absolute total loving, complete peacenik expression. Yeah. As a final question now before the quick fire, it's become conventional wisdom that the English game caught up with its European peers in the 1990s in terms of nutrition, training, playing styles, then with the advent of the Premier League, foreign imports and progressive managers. What does it say about the country who claims to have invented the game that we were rather backward in many of its practices? It's curious, isn't it? Well, we didn't just claim to invent the game. We did invent the game. I was very much brought up at school to understand where the roots of the games were. So yeah, so we and we have every right to be proud about that. I think we took our eye off the ball in the 70s. You look at the unbelievably skillful players we had in the 70s and we weren't qualifying for World Cup 74, 78. You could argue there's something in the English mindset 
mindset that actually thinks it's wrong to over-prepare for an event. So whether that's the charge of the light brigade, whether that is football sort of going long ball, whether it's not practicing penalties, maybe there is still some of that amateur ethos in this country that actually, no, it's in for a dig to actually sort of prepare for something. And, you know, the people we like most at school are those who've done no homework and swan into the Latin exam and get everything right. Whereas in fact, you've got to practice, you've got to prepare. Practice makes perfect. And I think, you know, we're beginning to learn because we got overtaken. English football got overtaken from a club perspective and then also from a international perspective. Maybe a sense of entitlement as the founders of the game, we thought we knew better. But that's not simply a football thing. I think if I can name you 10 areas of English public life where there's a sense of entitlement. I think that's very fair. Let's wrap up with some quick fire. Are you ready for that, Henry? Hit me. Perfect. Hit you. Okay, here we go. What's the kindest thing anyone's ever done for you? I got a marriage proposal on Twitter. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, of course, since you were married, that goes without saying. Okay, what's your most powerful memory? I think probably Steven Gerrard's goal early in the second half, 2005 Istanbul. Good one. Tell us something interesting about yourself most people don't know. Uh, I was a former choir boy in Westminster Abbey. Which book do you gift most regularly? My England book, which didn't Your sell. own book, okay. No, Accepting no, your own book. No, 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 but purely because it didn't sell, so I've got a few spare copies. <laughs> right. Fair enough. Okay, a very modest answer. What's your desert island music? That period from when I was 17 to 22, so 78 to 82, 83, probably the punk ever fall in love with someone you shouldn't have fallen in love with that era. I was fortunate to see The Clash live, a Rock Against Racism gig at either Brockwell Park or Vicky Park in 78, and hearing some of their music there was just extraordinary. I have a feeling that these two things are symbiotic in your life but winding down away from work tell me a little more about your hobbies i run a lot and i'm going to give you a couple of final extras just for you henry without choosing maradona messi or cristiano ronaldo which players would you pay to watch either from your era or before and lastly what about a desert island goal and then also a desert island piece of commentary I think Zidane's volley at Hampden Park in 2002 was special because of the occasion, because the Scots, the SFA, just did an amazing job. It was just a brilliant night. Great fans, great atmosphere. And because I went out with some Scottish mates afterwards, and I actually, I can genuinely, I genuinely don't know where I ended up. Any commentaries that come to mind? Well, it's up for grabs now, Brian Moore. Good. And with that, Henry, let me thank you hugely for joining me today and speaking with such honesty the humility and colour on the game we both love. I always find it inspiring talking to people who have a deep passion and almost obsessive knowledge and care for any subject, actually, and you embody all of that for football. So with an equal mix of small envy and great admiration, I wish you plenty more wonderful World Cups, travels and trips from Camp Now to Craven Cottage and wherever else. So thank you very much, Henry. My pleasure, Daniel. There ends my conversation with Henry. One of the pleasures of talking BS is that it takes one in so many different directions. Henry is a world-class journalist, not a behavioural scientist, but he brings insight into the human condition. He shares all his considerable experience on what it feels like to be at the heart of a game that means so much to him and millions of others elsewhere. Next week, I'm going to bring you part two of my interview with psychologist, writer and tech provocateur Nir Eyal, where we'll discuss how to overcome the urge to check your mobile every two minutes. Be well, stay tuned and remember to follow, subscribe and leave a review on whichever platform you're listening to this on. Till next time.